queer relationships, an IM clinic podcast devoted to helping you, the LGBTQ plus community, create the love lives and relationships you crave. Happy holidays to our IM clinic family throughout the world. For the holidays that have passed and the ones that are soon approaching, we wish you all as much joy as possible. We treasure you all so much. It's no secret that navigating the world as a queer person has its many triumphs as well as its many challenges, and the holiday season is no exception. In fact, it may often feel like a gauntlet. For this reason, Isaac and I wanted to connect with you and dedicate a special holiday episode towards some specific tips on navigating the season no matter how you celebrate it. And for those who have already finished your festivities, our hope is that these tips may serve you in future holidays and other gatherings down the road. This year, we had some Instagram participation, so we want to thank those of you who sent questions in for us to answer. In today's episode, Isaac and I will share some general tips for the holidays that we have gathered as queer people ourselves. We'll share some professional insights along with our own personal stories as we work to best answer your valuable questions. Let's take a listen. So it was the Christmas of 2009, and um, someone I had been dating for a really, really, really long time um, was coming home from war. He was coming from Iraq after being there for 18 months. And I remember going, I was so excited that he was coming home. I went to the store and used all my little grad school pennies to buy Mm. some holiday presents. And... um, yeah, I bought him. He was a firefighter, so I bought him, like, some really cool boots that he could use at work and, like, sweaters and all sorts of stuff. And it was during a time of my life where I wasn't comfortable being out. Mm-hmm. And so we were dating, but he wasn't allowed to be my boyfriend because that would have been too much, would have been too committal, um, too much commitment. And um, so in that ambivalence... He found someone else to date, and he came home on a Thursday, and I was living in our apartment, and late on Thursday night, and on Friday morning, um, he asked me to move out, and this was probably in, like, early December, and so it was this horrible, anxious time. I bought him all these gifts to show him how much I loved him, and the Sunday before Christmas, he wrote me this really long email saying that his new boyfriend was moving in, I should take all the Christmas presents and return them, and that he couldn't talk to me anymore. And Christmas morning, we wake up, right? And everybody's so excited and joyful. And I was in my bedroom bawling my eyes out. (laughs) And everybody was like so confused because I was so closeted. And so they had no idea what was wrong with me. They had no idea why I would be crying or why my world would have fallen apart, why I would be so anxious. And um, that was a a very unfortunate time for me to come out. But I did come out and everything was fine. I always think back on that Christmas and think like, Mm -hmm. just as we always say, what would it have been like to be out and comfortable Um, Hmm. so today's episode is really devoted to some of those challenges that can come up, not only during the holidays, but when we're with our families. Um, we've had people, um, write in on our Instagram, which is LGBTQ underscore therapy. And, um, they've sent in some questions so that we can maybe Mm -hmm. kind of talk through some, some tips and tricks on how to kind of get through the holidays. How do I say this? It's like, um... It's such a bizarre juxtaposition or kind of like an internal contrast, at least for me to like be excited about certain moments of gathering with different family members because of how, you know, meaningful they are to me or to my husband. Um, And then also simultaneously know that we won't be able to fully connect and I'm going to have to kind of like step back in and like put on a little bit of my like 
armor and a little bit of the wall and like really kind of figure out and kind of be the one to do the work around how to make that situation um a positive one because I don't want to show up for it to just be like a point of disconnect or turmoil and recognize it's going to not be comfortable um and I have to like figure out where my line is in terms of when I'm gonna speak up about something and when I'm not because it's like almost like walking through um um a minefield is how I would maybe describe it like okay like let's you know let's try to navigate this field because at the end of that is still connection with people who I really love, admire and respect on so many levels, but there's definitely things, you know, that could blow up pretty easily if we were to like go down that road. And I suppose for me, the the way in which that I've had to like navigate that, um, is really in thinking through kind of like my own personal boundary around the fact that like, Perhaps none of it's okay, um, but it's like, when is it okay for me to just change the subject and not get stuck in, because I can very easily in my personality get into, like, debates. Um, yeah, we've had to navigate that through multiple elections and um, all of the different, you know, seasons, and then also for sure around uh, LGBTQ rights and, and status and stuff. This might be a good segue to the first question and one of the major themes that you wanted to talk about is but avoiding challenging questions or challenging conversations or coming outs over the holidays. I think in general, um, as a person first and then also as a psychotherapist and a family therapist, um, something that I've had to learn and also try to communicate to my clients um, is to really be conscientious around the fact that like the holidays happen at a specific time in the year and are not the time to bring up really big life-changing conversations. And I know there's probably going to be times where there's exceptions to that based on life circumstance, but generally speaking, there are, you know, 364 other days other than that one holiday where you can be more intentional about cultivating an opportunity to have hard conversations or most especially like coming out conversations. Um, so that way your family doesn't have the added stress and pressure or their own issues with the holidays and you don't have to deal with that either. Um, and it can actually really be an opportunity to create space for that to be a conversation that's honored and not like tacked on. Um, to the holidays. So <clears throat> by no means am I saying, you know, to perpetuate, you know, closeting yourself if you're ready to come out. And it's not about promoting secrecy, but it is about being really wise and protective too of yourself um, and of your family um, in the sense that you want to give yourselves the best opportunity to be able to connect and actually have a conversation. I know that there's a lot of really specific and nuanced situations, but it's just something to think about. And a lot of times we don't think about the fact that it's like, okay, that actually doesn't have to happen now. Um, and this may feel very much like urgent, but it's not an emergency. So waiting even a few more days might be beneficial. This kind of connects us to the first question. It reads, my husband's parents know we're poly, but my mom does. How do we navigate this? You know, I think that however we come out, whether it's trans or gay, lesbian, pan, bi, or poly, I think that having a foundation is a really good thing to create, to build. And what I mean by foundation is kind of a platform of solidarity or maybe even emotional health because that in many ways will become a pillar that our parents will lean on. So it's to say kind of in my situation to say, I am happy and successful and healthy as a person born in a male body partnered with another man. And then to come out in that context where they know that I'm happy, comfortable, healthy, that that becomes that what they observe of me doesn't have to um, shake when I come out, that nothing about me is discredited. 
um, or that there's parts of me that seem um, fickle so that when I come out, they can trust my personality and my character and my personhood more than this new news about me. I like recommending this foundation because a lot of our parents will come with our own preconceived notions about what it means to be fill in the blank. To be gay, lesbian, pan, poly, or trans, I have this perceived notion as a straight cisgender parent about what that means. And creating this internal pillar of solidarity will really begin to challenge that preconceived notion even from the beginning. So I would say when a, when a, when a married couple that has otherwise been known as monogamous comes out as poly, I think for your family to understand the solidarity and the health of your relationship would be a very good start. And that doesn't have to be an overt conversation, but maybe more of a demonstration or an expression. I recommend, and this will probably be in every answer that I recommend today, but it's having a very strong understanding of the language that can articulate your internal story more than your external story. And so that is to say, as for a poly relationship, what does love mean and how does it expand beyond the traditional meanings? To have a really robust and sophisticated way of talking about love is going to help the coming out more. It will facilitate more understanding and more dialogue rather than nurture more bias and stigma. Being prepared as a husband and wife to talk about polyamorous relationships and love boundaries um, so that you have these really profound answers to the questions that they might ask, specifically questions that I think will come from fear and um, bias. What if this is about protecting kind of um, the dignity of the situation mm. and allows the conversation to come out in a way that's self-protective? I think there's a lot of wisdom um, in that because I think oftentimes we say, I need to come out it should be safe. This is my right. And by all means, those things are true. Mm -hmm. But also, so is protecting our privacy and mm -hmm. making sure that our coming out is done in a way that's honoring of who we are and respectful to us and our relationships. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If this is a new sort of season for you and your husband is finding a really good relational therapist who is very much poly informed. Um, would be very beneficial for both of you just so that you have a, um, a person who can help you to navigate all of those different pieces. Because something that comes to mind is that um, I think what I can say probably pretty confidently is that this isn't going to be, you know, a one-time process. This will probably be somewhat cyclical. And so you and your husband, as much as you're trying to figure out your own boundaries and your own understanding and your own relationship structure, you're also going to have to figure out how much of that you really want other people to be a part of. Um, and the other piece about that, too, is, you know, in a polyamorous situation, is there going to be a time when you want to have your other partners be a part of the holidays or be a serious kind of addition to your family? Um, and that's where I think you're going to have to approach that um, patiently. Um, and have a process with it and kind of really come up with what your values are and what it is that you're ultimately prioritizing. Um, I do think I would hope that you all would give yourself some grace in this holiday season to not feel like that's something that you have to completely navigate in order to have a really wonderful time or a connective time um, with your husband's parents, your in-laws. Um, because I think there can come a time down the road where you both are really intentional about navigating that conversation um, so that everybody can be present and pay attention to it. So um, going slow is really wise, I think, in general. That is, and, you know, like all things, um, it's going through a process and as exciting as it is to enter into, you know, the, the, the poly identity and expressing what that is, it can bring about a lot of really unexpected feelings, um, and different griefs. And it's going to be a, a really big learning season for you also just make sure that you're prioritizing taking care of yourselves in that and taking care of your relationship, um, as a primary concern.
I think when we we used to do a lot of work with conservative religious parents with queer children coming out and they wanted to debate like crazy. Well, this is what the Quran or the Bible says or um, this is what we believe and I need to, you know, snap my kid into straightness. Um, and a big part of our work then was helping parents re-engage the attachment they had with their kiddos rather than being seen as right or winning a moral debate. And I think it, it, what you're mentioning here reminds me of that because a holiday season can be a time to really fortify the attachment between you and your parents mm -hmm. so that when mm -hmm. you're ready to come out, there's this strong relational foundation mm -hmm. that can sustain the weight of the news mm -hmm. or what will feel like weight, um, even though it shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. um, but so mm -hmm. I, I really resonate with that a lot. Mm -hmm. Along the same lines, the next question is, how do you handle relatives treating your queerness as a secret around children? I kind of go down this, this vein of logic, so bear with me just a moment. You know, I think a lot of parents who are hiding your queerness from their children would say things like, well, I just, I don't think my kid is ready for that yet, or um, I don't want to, you know, take their innocence from them or something along those lines. The fact of the matter is, though, straight couples are demonstrating and expressing their relationships in front of children from the very beginning. I mean, mm -hmm. that's obviously, right, the nuclear family system. Mm -hmm. And so to say that a healthy, thriving, successful relationship would somehow alter a child's reality begins to, in my opinion, reveal a subtle version of homophobia mm -hmm. um, or transphobia or whatever it may be. And so I really go back to, again, finding the language to really articulate your story as a way of educating people about the experience. And it's a heavy burden. It can feel like a heavy burden to be responsible for educating all of the straight cisgender people in, the, in your family. Mm -hmm. But I think oftentimes it can, for me, it feels like, this education doesn't have to be a sit-down tutorial or a lecture, but more part of the relational dynamic because it's an ex it's a practice of vulnerability rather than a teaching of a lesson. If I were going to add some rubber to the road here, I think, or meat to the bone, I would say that what I'm trying to describe here is is to say, as you parents of this child are getting to know me and my partner the majority of what's happening here is exactly what's happening among you and your straight relationship that love is the same no matter the people it is shared between and really providing context for that i think helps destigmatize the love between two people of the same gender or love among queer people I also think that there's this bias that it will somehow confuse children when in fact I think children more than any of us get the idea that love is safe, it's warm, it's um, fun and exciting. And I think as children, as parents, provide the context that love stretches beyond heterosexuality, they're actually doing their children a service to understand and embrace the full spectrum of love rather than one socially prescribed version of it. Of course, there's the whole, how do you interface with the parents of this child? Do you confront them? Um, do you avoid going over to, the, to their house because they're withholding this information? I think it, depending on your relationship with them, it might be wise to really assess why are they withholding the information from the kiddo how does that serve them? Are they uh, under the assumption that it will protect the kid? Does it make it easier for them as parents? I might really get to know the context before I make a, a pretty big judgment. Mm -hmm. Until now, our hands at I Am Clinic have been tied to the state of Colorado. We could only offer counseling services to those within our home state. It was hard turning away people from all over the world seeking counseling services, but now I'm proud to say we have launched I Am Clinic, a life, career, and financial coaching business for you. 
No matter where you are in the world, we have a coach that can help you live the love lives and relationships you crave. We have coaches, some who've audited companies on Wall Street, who've worked for major financial institutions, esteemed career coaches who have run national career coaching organizations, and life coaches who are also mental health professionals ready to help you tackle your goals. So if you're in rural Minnesota, urban Tokyo, or right down the street, we have a whole team ready to get you where you want to go. Visit us at imcouncil.com. That's iamcouncil.com to read all about it. Now let's get back to the show. when the process of quote-unquote acceptance is definitely one that follows a like continuum and it's not a straight line often um, with the people around us and it takes a lot of time and patience. Um, I think, you know, this is something that most likely um, not knowing your whole, um, you know, background and you know, family structure and reasons, you know, a lot of what Isaac was saying, like not really fully knowing the context, you know, I think, um, it, it really does feel like it's warranted to have a conversation about this. Um, again, I would suggest not right during the holidays, but more throughout the year leading up to them. Um, and this sounds like a bigger family conversation anyway. Um, And that can be one of those processes where you demonstrate a certain level of patience, um, but also express your pain. Um, uh, That part of you that is, you know, very much who you are um, would need to be kept from or hidden um, is a pain that I think is a really important one to um, let loved ones see so that they know that there actually affects um, around these decisions and that you, even though you might be an adult, um, also deserve to be protected too from those feelings. Um, So I think it's a really okay line to hold. I don't think going to absolutes immediately would be the way to handle that if you want to maintain and continue to move forward on that acceptance continuum with your family, which, you know, I mean, it sounds like they are trying to move in that direction. It would be nice if they would be able to get there faster, I know, but um, it sounds like it would be more of an ongoing conversation of sharing what it is that you do need and how it is that you can kind of start to gain evidence that that will happen so that it's not something, you know, that is like hush-hushed or swept under the rug or that you become the secret. But something along the lines of understanding the context and then understanding a little bit more of the plan. So, um, you know, how is it that we want to go about um, telling the younger generation as a family about, you know, queerness and the LGBTQ world in general, because it exists too. Um, and how can we also, you know, have, you know, beneficial conversation around that Um in regards to you as an individual and what that means for you. And um, obviously that, you know, um, it can be done developmentally appropriately, you know, according to when the, like the children's age and what their understanding is about sex and relationships in general. Um, But I think kind of getting at that and not hitting it head on and invalidating their fears because that'll just close the door immediately. And I know that's a a big ask for you, Um, but it is creating kind of a little bit more of an invitation around, hey, what are you afraid of? What's happening here? And what about about this is scary and how can we work on giving you some information to know, you know, and a plan to know that we can do this together, but it's okay for you to also, at some point, if it's appropriate, put your foot down, having given some of those things a try, if there's a real unwillingness, um, you know, you don't have to be willing to then, you know, perpetually hide yourself either. So that would probably lead to a part two tip. (laughs) Yes, for sure. 
I'm one thing at a time. Yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking about a story uh, when my nephew Jackson, um, before Joe and I were kind of out as a couple, um, my nephew was really, really little. I remember that there were moments where Jack would come over and spend the night at, at our apartment. We'd put up a tent in the living room and we just had a blast. And connecting to Jack, my nephew was so, so, so fun for me. It kind of changed my life in a way. And my sister never really withheld the information, but found a good time to tell him. And I remember there was that process, one side of the train track, but on the other side of the train track was this process of, oh crap, is Jack still going to love me? Will he still want to, to come around? Will he still love me the same way? Um, and so it's kind of a repeat again, but I'm so grateful that Jack and I had a solid foundation, that our relationship was so strong that him learning about who I am wasn't necessarily something that shattered, but it was more of an addition. It was an additional information of someone that he knew really, really well. Mm. Um, and I'm, I'm really grateful that I was a safe person for him in his own journey and his own questions, because I think that made it more easy for him to step into his own sexuality um, and embrace his version of love because he knew that um, if I was so solid in mine, I could be so solid in his too. And so I think going through the holidays and just being really present and creating, again, that foundation, isn't it's never gonna do you wrong. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Shall we move on? <laughs> sure. The next question, we'll mm -hmm. kind of stick in this vein. As an ally, how do I, how should I support my child when no one else in my family does. I think, you know, there's a lot of opportunity in a situation like that um, to continue to be who you are to your child every other day, um, which is a very safe face. Um, a person who does their own um, exploration, their own education, um, their own support seeking um, so that you can create a container for your child to be able to process through the things that they will need to process through and having um, engagement with your family um, and also engagement with the world um, and all of its facets and, um, and all of the people in it who will also um, not be accepting of your child, unfortunately. Um, the thing I think I, I kind of want to communicate in this is more of a message of hopefulness around that in regards to attachment theory. Um, and there's just extensive research out there um, that just shows the resiliency factor of having strong attachment bases, meaning that you have a sense of security, knowing that the person um, who is one of your attachment figures um, is one who's consistent, who is there for you, meaning um, there is a commitment factor, there's an ongoing piece of being able to, you know, depend on um, and trust, right, that person. And then also that that person sees you and is able to attune to you. That would be the language that we would use to that, which means, you know, paying attention to subtle cues that might kind of communicate that you're not okay or that you are okay actually, like paying attention to moments of joy, paying attention to moments of sorrow and checking in, um, you know, creates a really solid base um, for, for relationships and attachment. And there's so much literature out there that you can read up on um, to help affirm that. But the other piece to it is um, it also helps to mitigate the effects of trauma. And um, as you have probably heard before in this podcast, maybe not, um, we do talk about trauma in the um, psychological field, like through the lens of big T trauma and little t trauma. And big T traumas tend to be more event specific. Um, they can be multiple events, but they do tend to be things like a car accident, um, a really you know terrible experience of bullying, um, 
you know, having to go through basically a moment in time or moments in time that were that a situation occurred that was out of your bandwidth of tolerance, meaning your body and your brain were not able to fully capture or process the data of the situation because it was just too much. Um, that's kind of the big T stuff. The little T stuff is ongoing. Um, we would require, we would refer to things like microaggressions, um, to be small T trauma, um, little moments of criticism or, um, or not being accepted. Um, you know, having, um, repeated experiences essentially of what I would say are rejection cues, um, and so this is the kind of trauma most likely, unfortunately, might have to mitigate both. And the good news is attachment does mitigate both of them. Um, but the small T trauma is the one that your child's going to feel and that your family is going to also be contributing to around the holidays. So I think coming into it with the sense of a game plan and talking about it with your kiddo ahead of time, letting them know that you're there and that you're paying attention to your to them um giving them the opportunity to be able to tap out if they need to um and having a plan for where they might go to be able to get some space and that you would go check on them if they needed that um and you know i think having a threshold again and understanding with your family members that even though they don't accept your child there's still certain things even though you can't change their beliefs or their opinions that are unacceptable for them to like say in front of your child or to exhibit in front of your child because that would be harmful in a way that you are not willing to permit. Um, and I think having moments of being able to clarify that and even having, you know, your, your child be aware that you've done that can be really helpful because it shows some intention around, you know, letting your child know that we're doing our best we can to create um, safety and a container for you, even if we can't control this. And then I do think the other piece as well is for you and your child to talk about the positives that you do want to focus on, the things that you are looking forward to in regards to seeing family, what would feel meaningful around that time, how would they feel like they can connect a little bit more, um, so that again, they can see things more from a picture of a bull band, right? That people can have parts of themselves that we aren't in agreement with or that we don't, you know, that we actually really struggle with or that may even be super painful to us, but then they can also have parts that we really love and feel nurtured by. Um, so there's a lot there, <laughs> but that would be my two cents. Mm-hmm. I feel like oftentimes I'm, I'm probably going to just summarize everything you just said with different language, Great. but I, I find that um, as a therapist sitting in a room with a family, you know, it's like two parents with a trans kiddo and they keep misgendering the kid and dead naming. And I have to, I think over the years I've cultivated what feels like a Titan, like this warrior within me that says, I'm going to stand here and defend right in front of parents, the kiddo's identity. And I, I kind of categorize this under the idea that I just came up with several years ago, but mm-hmm. of um, relational equity. Mm-hmm. You know, we have this idea of social equity or educational equity and what it means to make sure that everybody has the same resources. When we think about relational equity, I, I like to use the metaphor of a recipe. You know, relational equality would say everybody gets an equal spot at the table. But relational equity says everybody's spices are part of the recipe because that's what makes the recipe the best. And so this warrior I have found makes sure that all spices are added to the recipe, even queer family member spices. Mm -hmm. And so equality is not only making sure that the queer person is safe and feels comfortable at the table, but it's also making sure that their input, um, their voice, their personality has room to exist and pepper the context. And sometimes as an ally, it means being the gladiator or the warrior to make sure that that has space. So using the appropriate pronouns, um, not dead naming, allowing the, the pride socks to, you know, have space when they pop out of the stocking, 
um, mm-hmm. and to, to really create the safety or help support the safety that the queer person needs. I find that this is a, a really beautiful way of mirroring for the queer person and for everybody else. And the mirroring is the queer person expressing their authenticity and you as the ally taking it in mm-hmm. as, you know, kind of um, receiving it. But then the mirroring part is giving the positive feedback, the saying, I can reflect who I see you to be and it is beautiful. That mirroring process not only helps support the self-esteem of the queer person, but it also kind of sets the relational equity as a dynamic within the context so that everybody Mm. can see the boundaries that are appropriate, even if they don't agree, your position as as the ally or that internal gladiator really helps um, set the stage for what is and isn't appropriate Mm -hmm. for that queer person. So I guess what I'm saying is that being the gladiator can be really exhausting and it takes a lot of courage, Um, but but it is, I think, really, really beneficial. Mm-hmm. I think even for those of us who are queer, finding that gladiator to say, please don't dead name me or mm-hmm. my pronouns, are they them? Or to say, um, uh, hey, that was a little microaggression. This is how I would talk about that. Mm-hmm. Um, is is really important, you know. Mm-hmm. I found this definition helpful, um, but it was the, the actual the author um, I forget his name, of microaggressions. And he said, a microaggression is any time that you think you're complimenting someone, but you're actually showing your bias. You know, for someone over the summer to say, wow, Isaac, you're really tan. That can sound like a compliment, but it's actually a microaggression. Mm. And um, so for someone to say, oh my gosh, your son is really feminine and creative, and they mean it as a compliment, but it's a microaggression. Mm. And to to pull up that gladiator to say, you know what, we really do embrace the femininity in him, and it's not this uniqueness that shines from time to time, it is who he is. And and we really embrace that here all all year longer, however you might want to deal with those microaggressions. But um, Mm. I think that mirroring is really, really helpful because it identifies for the queer person who is safe. Mm-hmm. And that can be really helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any other thoughts? <laughs> mm. I do think I want to say that, um, you know, it's it's wonderful that you wrote this question. Because um, that in and of itself shows just how much you care and how much you're working to um, to be that mirror and be that safe space. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though I know, and I totally understand as a parent, like it's so hard to not be able to shield your kid from everything and you want to, what it is that you are doing is helping them to figure out how to navigate and cope, um, with the realities of the world. So there's opportunities to be able to build in that sense of self and that resiliency and kind of model, you know, how is it that we navigate hard situations mm-hmm. like this? And what do we do to make sure that you feel as supported and safe? And who else can we bring in on that? So it's not even just the two of you against the world, but, you know, connecting your kiddo to other, you know, other kids who identify as queer, um, other families, um, you know, other resources, having a good therapist, um, doing those kinds of things and creating other allies um, can be really helpful so that they know that, even in a situation they might feel alone, but they're not actually alone mm-hmm. overall. This came up earlier and I forgot to mention it, but you're reminding me of it, that when a child specifically sees a protective parent protecting them, they're actually learning how to protect themselves. Mm-hmm. That's so true. finding kind of this internal gladiator is not only helpful right there in the moment, but it's a way to demonstrate for the kiddo how to navigate through the world, protecting their own dignity and their self-esteem mm-hmm. as a queer person. Mm-hmm. And so I think that this is, it goes beyond just doing something over the holidays and extends more into how the, the child will interact as a functional person in society. Mm-hmm. So this, this is a really great gift. Mm-hmm. It is. This next question really kind of um, touches a really Mm-hmm. Uh, important button in my professional and personal worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, but the question reads, 
how do I overcome the guilt mm. of not being with family this Christmas due to homophobia? Mm. I kind of want to insert a word here, not to misquote someone, but to <laughs> <laughs> prove a point. Mm-hmm. The question I might read would say, how do I overcome the guilt of not being with family this Christmas due to their homophobia? Mm-hmm. And so basically what we're looking at here is the way that we feel guilty because other people are homophobic. And there's a lot of like irony, a lot of paradox, a lot of counterintuitiveness there. But I say that this is, I can get up on a soapbox here, so I'll keep it real short. (laughs) But I say that this is the effects of enmeshment. And I want to talk about this until the day I die, (laughs) because I do feel like it is a relational pandemic that we do suffer from. Enmeshment is the idea that we have to take care of other people's emotions. And so by withholding ourselves, because other people are homophobic, can provoke guilt. But I think that that guilt comes from the training that says, I am in charge of making sure other people are comfortable and okay around me. Mm -hmm. And if I don't ensure their comfort or their peace, I am the jerk because I've been trained to believe that it is my job to keep their peace and safety intact. Mm -hmm. And so when we feel guilty for not being present because we're protecting ourselves, I wanna rephrase that, when we feel guilty for protecting ourselves, we really want to assess the enmeshment that we've suffered from. Mm -hmm. Because I think the alternative is to say, I feel really proud that I'm protecting myself from a homophobic family. Mm -hmm. But we don't get that right because Mm -hmm. we've swallowed so much enmeshment. And so I just want to throw that that enmeshment piece out there. The thing that I always talk about in this kind of question is a boundary. And we always think that the boundary is a wall that protects us from being hurt, and it is. But one of my favorite authors, Pia Malady, would say that the, a functional boundary is not only designed to protect people from hurting us and a barrier to protect others from our wounding, mm-hmm. but it's also to function almost like a snow globe that keeps our emotional climate intact. Mm-hmm. And so the boundary here is something we have to hold up for ourselves that says, no, 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 Isaac, you're not allowed to feel guilty because they're homophobic. So what I have to do internally is hold up this boundary that says if they could adjust their attitude, I would be safe to go. Part of the snow globe, I find it's really helpful is to come up with alternative narratives. You know, the homophobic parent might say, um, well, you're allowed to come, but don't bring your partner. Or you could bring your partner, but don't show any physical affection. And we're going to make you sleep in different beds, even though you're married. The parent who has a healthy boundary up would say, you are welcome here. We have a lot to learn, but we hope that fortifying our attachment over this holiday season will allow us to see the beauty in your relationship. You are welcome as you are. And thinking about that alternative narrative allows us to dispel the guilt because it shows that they're actually responsible for their emotional climate and it relieves us from the obligation to make sure that that emotional climate is comfortable for them. Mm -hmm. And so I think that this guilt is not something that makes you broken or it's not uncommon. I would say that in, in the most painful version, the guilt is actually a trauma response to the the fractures of an attachment where the kiddo felt like they were responsible of making sure their parent was comfortable and then they failed. Um, When those failures feel so devastating to a child, we will walk with guilt in our adulthood. And so I just want to be careful that the guilt isn't coming from the narrative that that you are, that it is your job that it is your sole purpose to keep your family comfortable. Um, Because in this context, your guilt, um, I wish I could wave a magic wand and just get rid of it for you because your job is to be cherished, not to perform. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So well said. And I think, um, you know, I, along with those very like powerful words of wisdom, I do hear and want to acknowledge that, um, you know, it brings about a really difficult consequence that you have to bear, which is also some loneliness and, um, isolation, isolation. Yeah. yeah. Um, feeling the guilt that you're not there, but then also probably feeling like an internal, you know, struggle, which is like, why did I have to lose the opportunity of connection to be my authentic self? Um, and just, I think what I would say is really making sure that you're taking care of yourself and that you also have a plan for the holidays. Um, there's lots of ways to cultivate that for yourself, but knowing that, um, you know, you're probably going to need some support systems just to be able to process through on the day, or at least knowing that you have those available will make it a little bit better. Anticipating the fact that you're going to be emotional is better than hoping you won't be. Um, because then if you're not, it's a pleasant surprise, I guess. <laughs> but the likelihood is, is that it's going to be a mixed bag. Um, so really leaning in on your support systems that you have developed uniquely, if that's chosen family or people in the queer community or even just friends, um, whatever their status or identity is, um, just really making sure that they know also how to support you. Um, and I think being really okay with sharing that with the people who love you um, and, and fully accept you um, is a very powerful thing to know that you're not again, burdening anyone um, with that, but actually a lot of people will want to help and be supportive of you, but they just don't maybe totally know how or not sure where they're welcome to. Um, so utilizing that would be really good. Um, you know, and then I think the other thing too that can be interesting with guilt is sometimes we can really struggle um, in delineating, you know, the difference between guilt and shame. Um, and sometimes that can help to sort of take the power out of it and maybe help you to really understand what it is that you're feeling. Um, you know, it could be guilt, but um, guilt typically is, you know, something that you feel when you've done something wrong. So that's something to help break down, and especially within the context of what Isaac just shared, where it's like, okay, have I actually done something wrong, even if it feels weird? Um, can help you to kind of maybe release a little bit of the burden that you might be feeling where it's like, is it wrong for me to protect myself? And then the answer is no. So you can at least validate the feelings actually may not be guilt. They might be sadness or loneliness or fear, or they might be shame, um, which might be a process that you're in, in terms of trying to kind of navigate through and exit out of your own shame narrative, which, you know, shame says, I am something wrong. And um, again, that is a process. And so it's being really kind to yourself and acknowledging that, but making sure one of the best ways that we can, you know, counteract shame is by recognizing that we're not isolated, that we're not alone, um, and helping to cultivate narratives um, within ourselves that release us from, you know, the lie, ultimately, that there's something wrong with us because, you know, there's something different. Um, so, you know, I think doing some of your own emotional work will be really helpful in gaining greater freedom um, within that. And then I also say there's something really positive about really acknowledging those feelings, but not being totally uh, captive to them. So doing, doing positive things in the midst is almost like a replacement, right? So you can't totally take away the pain and you can't totally take away, um, you know, all of the emotions around this, but you can kind of start your own traditions, your own ways of connecting to loved ones. And you can also do other positive things like volunteer, um, which can be really helpful in creating feelings of benevolence and understanding and connect uh, people from all different types of backgrounds and situations, which allows you to connect to um, the bigger picture of humanity which really actually helps us to not feel so alone, um, no matter what it is that we're struggling with. So I'd highly recommend that. Um, and there's all kinds of resources available now, which is amazing. I think about off the top of my head, like, you know, your holiday mom, you know, they have letters 
um, that are available that you can, you know, be a part of or sign up for that um, help to kind of create that supportive narrative and replacement. Um, so there's a lot of things there, and I think a lot of what you know Isaac was pointing to is the beginning of really you know stepping into healthy differentiation. What is it that's yours to hold, and what is it you know that is yours to carry, and and what isn't, and actually kind of parting ways with the things that aren't. find that our stories are one of the most valuable components to the mortar that holds us together as a queer community. Our stories normalize the aspects of life that leave us feeling separated, and they provide the hope for a different life. The successes, tricks, and resilience of others can spark the potentials that lie within all of us. I hope that some of the stories we share today, the stories of our personal lives and those we commonly hear as therapists, help you navigate the rest of the year and the future with more confidence in your innocence, compassion for your familial challenges, and strength to be your best self. Depending on your timeline for celebrations, you may be approaching wounds, old familial patterns, and high emotions in the next few weeks. I hope that in walking in your own narrative, the one that allows you to honor your truth and the one that makes your life more fulfilling today gives you the peace to see your own beauty when others cannot or will not. The questions we answer today are signs that we still have a lot of work to do. And the fact that we even have to answer these questions and live through the challenges they bring can be incredibly deflating and exhausting. I really respect what Jamie said. You don't have to have tough conversations over the holidays. Protect your energy, preserve your holidays, and make them what you want. Sometimes taking care of yourself means saving the tough conversations for a time that isn't smattered with so many high expectations. Self-care in the coming out process might start with building upon or repairing your familial attachment first. Having a stable relational structure will give you the ability to sustain the weights of homophobia and transphobia, especially as you come out and live out. And to the trustworthy ally who boldly protects and supports Thank you for your question, for sure, but also for the love you have for your queer family members. Your tenderness and stamina will not go unnoticed by the queer people you love so well. My hope for all of you is that you are able to walk through the holidays cherishing who you are and the loved ones around you, the ones who do nothing more than convince you of your inherent beauty and inherent value. However you celebrate or not, I wish you a very happy end of the year. Queer Relationships is a podcast sponsored by I Am Clinic, a counseling practice devoted to the LGBTQ plus community with in-person and virtual counseling options available. I Am Clinic, create the love lives and relationships you crave. Find us online on Instagram at LGBTQ underscore therapy and Facebook at I Am Clinic. That's I-A-M Clinic. Thank you.